Welcome to Weird Sounds, an audio companion to the Boston Art Book Fair and Boston Center for the Arts. I'm your host, Oliver Mack. And I'm also your host, Randy Hopkins. Oliver and I are the co-founders of the Boston Art Book Fair, which has brought us into contact with an incredible array of artists and creative thinkers. We want to share some of these conversations with you. And that's exactly why we started Weird Sounds, as a podcast to document the ways that people are making art all around us these days. We have so many questions for artists because we love hearing about the ideas and images, inspirations and aspirations behind their practices, and we know you will too. Hey, Weird Sounds, how have you been? We have a fascinating guest today. Paul Suellis is an artist and educator based in Providence, Rhode Island. He is the founder of Queer Archive Work, an independent nonprofit that supports artists, writers, and activists with a shared studio space for queer publishing. Paul also heads the Department of Graphic Design at RISD, and we first met him through his personal artwork in experimental publishing. We love Paul. He was in our very, very first book fair, 2017, and we have admired him ever since. Stay around to listen to our conversation with him. So are we doing the clapping again or no, that, that was oh. the whole podcast. We're actually done. Um, you don't have to tell us any more so about your, your work and your, um, mm. all the things that we want to ask you were answered, which is one action. <laughs> That's incredible. I mean, what technology can do now. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it is pretty amazing. Good. But I think that maybe that's the first, the, the greatest place to start with our awesome guest, Paul Suelis. Did I pronounce your last name right? You did. Suelis. Yeah, that's it. I did it. I did it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Yeah, I just think that your your work's amazing. And I, I wanted to dive directly into just your, your, your thoughtful analysis and the, uh, all your ideas about technology and how you capture it with uh, with these these amazing projects that that bring people together. Mm, thank you. Yeah. I think we, we first had you, you, you've been part of the Boston Art Book Fair since the beginning. Yeah, yeah. I think since, um, I think I was there at the first one. You, Randy, isn't that right? You absolutely were. And it was our experimental first one that was in That's several right. venues across BCA, which was so hysterical. But, and I have to give a shout out to our amazing book fair intern from that year, Olivia Meyer Jeanette, who helped us whatever, figure out how to put everybody everywhere. But but Olivia was really the one who said, Paul has to go in the front window. And I was like, (laughs) really? This guy has this weird, like, internet, like, funky thing. So, but that's right. But I've I've learned and I've become a fan, but that was really fun. I don't know. We really were out on a limb on that one. Yeah. That was an incredible event. I mean, I remember being in that front window with, I think I was there with the library of the printed web project. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then I was back, maybe it was the very next year when I was in the the big round space. Yeah. 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 I mean, I don't remember even what years those were. It was just like, (laughs) to me, it was like a hundred years ago, but. Yeah, that's how it was. (laughs) Well, I guess, how would you describe the library of the printed web? Let's, let's, uh, let's imagine uh, in the arcane world that maybe they, someone hasn't heard about this project. Oh, well, plenty of people have not heard about it. No, it's, um, yeah, that's, that's a good place to start. It's kind of, that's a good project to talk about because it's like right in the middle of whatever my story, my journey as, as a creative person, there's a, there's a lot of 
life leading up to that project and a lot that's come after it. But that particular moment was interesting for me because it was me trying as an artist who was working with publishing, self-publishing, independent publishing. I was learning about what it means for artists to do publishing as, as a practice. That was a new concept for me. And I'm talking like early 2010s when I was just even myself beginning to feel comfortable even using the word artist. But up until then, I was a graphic designer, a designer for many, many years in New York City. And anyway, I was doing my own work and realizing that a lot of people and friends that I was hanging out with, that I was going to art book fairs with, participating in them with, were all working with the internet, but in print form, which was an interesting kind of contrast to me. People who were interested in digital culture, but were still making books. And that seems so niche. I mean, it's such a, it's such a, like a very particular thing. And it is. And that is why a lot of people don't know about it. But in the world of, um, in the very small world of artistic publishing and self-publishing, or a particular part of that world, this, this was, this was re really a kind of moment. Um, Kenneth Goldsmith was doing all these things with printing out the internet. I was starting to experiment with it and even starting to publish artists' works in this way. Uh, and I think it was really about that particular moment in the history of the internet, which sounds so grand, but it was really just a few years ago, but that's, that's how quickly things are moving. But in the early 2010s, this was just really a few years after the iPhone came out and everybody was carrying, you know, smart devices around in their pockets. And I, you know, we all know this, you know, how that particular moment can't really be understated in terms of how it changed everything, but particularly in how it changed how artists work. Uh, and I'm talking in the most broad, you know, general terms, certain things did change. I think like our, our relationship to how we find material, how we use, how we copy, how we appropriate, um, all of that was shifting, uh, some of it actually in kind of radical ways. And that project was really about trying to capture that in, in, a, in a way, capture it, analyze it, experiment with it, display it, show it, write about it. Yeah, a lot happened with that project. I mean, I could keep going, but <laughs> well, I'm so, you. I that just ha gives makes me have questions. In like you say, on both sides of it, super curious about the journey that took you there for one thing, but but also really really curious about how that then morphed into the kind of work you're doing now, which is which is pretty different in certain in a bunch of ways. Your interests have have sort of evolved, but I'm really curious to hear, maybe starting from. Um, even the background to the printed web, like were your interests always sort of activist sociological? No, <laughs> no, not at all. Um, I think, I think that's, that's really been a recent thing in my own practice and my own growth really. But for many years, as I mentioned, I was working as a graphic designer. I went to school for architecture actually so long ago, never became an architect and just kind of very slowly, figured out how to do graphic design on my own, never went to school for it, completely self-taught. And I was in New York City for 26 years figuring stuff out. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And eventually, after working in a couple of big corporate identity branding firms, um, started my own office, 
ran that for about 15 years, did a ton of client work, just so much work. <laughs> and I got, and, and really about as far from what we're talking about here today, as you can imagine, I mean, I was doing work for Sears and for Coca-Cola and Cornell University and like doing some work that I really loved and doing a lot of work that I did not love. And um, I, I would say I was pretty successful at it, but also just got completely burned out. And there was a big shift that happened for me right around 2010, where I just kind of dropped everything, took off. And, <laughs> you know, I was in that, I was in a, a, a very, I would, you know, looking back on it now, I have to say a very privileged moment of being able to say, okay, here was a really successful run. I had been doing all of this work. I had figured out how to be a graphic designer and make a living from it and more than make a living, you know, a whole world of relationships and networks and that I had cultivated, but I needed to just separate from that and disconnect for a while. So I kind of got rid of all my clients and took off, left the country for a little while. And that's when I started asking some of these more interesting questions like, oh, now what? What else could I do? What would it mean to call myself an artist? What would it mean to do something like make a book, but not for a client? Like what, what even are my interests? I mean, those are big questions, just those are life questions, you know, but that was, that was that. I mean, it's only 12 years ago that I did that. You know, I'm 54. So like that's looking back on it. This is a small portion of my life, but it feels very much, uh, it feels very big in, in, my, in where I am and my growth and who I am today. Super interesting that the that an art that the art book fair as a like an entity also probably grew up with you right in around that same play. Like, but did that as a platform affect what you were able to do or what you could imagine sort of creating? Absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, I remember the very first time I ever went to any kind of art book fair. It was Printed Matters Art Book Fair in New York. Uh, probably. I don't know. When did it start? early 2000s. I don't know. It was probably like the second or third one. It was at the, the old Dia space on West 22nd Street. And I remember just being so overwhelmed. I mean, everyone always says that about Printed Matters Art Book Fair, but my own personal experience of that at that moment was so um, overwhelmed, but also overjoyed because I had never experienced or seen anything like this, this kind of coming together of people in this particular way. And I remember I was with my friend, John, and I remember saying to him, okay, next year, I want to be here, like here in the fair. <laughs> and it was kind of like a, you know, a kind of manifestation in that moment that, you know, I was sort of half joking, but also half not joking. Like, I don't know how, but somehow I want to do this. And I was, I think, I think that was, yeah, that was the year before that was leading up to my joining ABC Artist Books uh, Cooperative. And that was around 2011, 2012. And then after I joined the very next year, I was in the New York Art Book Fair with about four square inches of space on their <laughs> shared table <laughs> with like 14 people showing up to that fair um, as part of that collective. And that was, a, that was a really incredible moment for me because not only had I made that happen in a very particular way, like here's my one little book on this one small table, but suddenly I was connected in, in a very specific way. 
We always we see that when we do the fair that the exhibitors are an organism of their own. It's a it's it, I think it's really fun to be behind the tables in those things as much as for you know for all the uh, exchange that goes on with the other side of the tables. But that's really interesting. What was that first publication? Uh, that first publication was okay. Actually, it wasn't just one; it was two. I had just finished a project called Weymouths and. That was how someone in ABC got to know me or through that project. And that was a set of 12 books that I did during the London 2012 Olympics. And it was for an arts festival over in England. And they commissioned me for the arts festival to make 12 books as a set about Weymouth, England and Weymouth, Massachusetts and the connections between the two, the disconnects between them. So I did that. That's a whole other story. I could talk for an hour just about that project. But anyway, I had this boxed set of books, uh, which was a really strange, you know, project and collection of of works in this box. And, And then I had another book called 66 Sunsets. It was based on Ed Boucher's Sunset Strip book, the big fold out book. But it was a uh, it was searching the internet for sixty six sunsets that I then sort of pieced together to create the book, and I just used Blurb, I think, a print on demand service to make that book, and that was my first experience using print on demand. And I made a bunch of them, and I showed up with these two really obscure projects, and it felt really good looking back on it and everything that's happened since. You know, that was really just the start of something, and this kind of connects to uh, a little bit of a philosophy that I have around publishing that it's for me less about the objects that you're making that I'm making and the actual books or zines themselves and more about how they're circulating and the relationships that are forming around them. So when I look at, I mean, that's why I can only sort of half remember that book. It's, it wasn't the book that was important to me. It was um, who else was at the table and who else I was meeting at the fairs um, and the start of the building of a particular network culture that continues today for me. I mean, you use that phrase network culture as like a really important identifier for, for your practice. Yeah. When did, I don't know, you want to talk more about that? Sure. Yeah. It's a really important phrase for me because, and it's changed because when I first started using it, I was a contributing editor and doing a lot of writing for Rhizome in New York. That was when I was part of New Inc. at the New Museum a couple of years after I was at that table for the first time at the New York Art Book Fair. And network culture became a really neat way to talk about internet art, net art, But also bigger than that, just sort of culture online, you know, the way we're living our lives online back when we were sort of making that distinction, like life online versus life online. Today, I don't think there's really much of a a distinction like that. But in 2013, 2014, that that felt important. So network culture, yeah, digital culture. It's changed, though, very recently, like in the last year, I've started talking about network culture more in terms of what I was just speaking about. The the networks that we form through our work, through our practice, through through our activism, through our collective works, those kinds of networks and the culture and the culture that exists within 
any of these kinds of networks, how that relates to digital or, or not digital life. So in other words, it's expanded <laughs> for me. God, it says something to me about when, like, I actually didn't associate the phrase with digital because I think we are in a moment mm. where the idea of network culture, I mean, I think of it in relation to your practice with the open library. Is that what it's called? I actually thought of it as like human network. I forgot that we're that network. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that was such a term of art about the digital, for, but it feels like it isn't so much anymore. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it had real significance much earlier on, like in the 70s, 80s, 90s, when the Internet was, you know, transforming and becoming what it is um, when it was a thing that you could point to. Like, I don't think there is any real internet you can point to today because it's, it's everywhere. And it's, it's, it, it is within every part of our lives. But back when it was a thing, it was convenient, I think, to just call it the network, you know, refer to the network um, in that way. But yeah, I mean, it's, it is different for me today because I thinking about the internet in that way feels kind of um, limited to me now. I mean, I don't work on library of the printed web anymore, that project as a curatorial project, as a collecting project, as a publishing project got acquired by MoMA library uh, in 2017. And that was an amazing moment to sort of wrap the project, the whole project up, package it up and hand it over to, you know, like the ultimate archive. And um, I thought I would continue to work on it afterwards, but I didn't. And I'm just totally fine having it sit there <laughs> being taken care of far longer than, than I ever could. And then you transitioned to uh, starting the Queer Archive Work Project in the open library. Yeah. Was, that, was there a gap yeah. between those two? Not really. One kind of led right into the other. So 2017, I mentioned, Library of the Printed Web went to MoMA. And, you know, Trump had just been elected. And that was a moment just in my own growth as an artist where I was asking a lot of new questions, like, what is the relevance of this work that I'm doing? You know, I think a lot of people were in that moment, like how... How might my practice, my work, my teaching, whatever it is that that we all are doing at that moment, it felt um, to me like kind of like a mo- like a, a moment of reckoning. Like how how am I contributing to something that I would call resistance? And that was that was a difficult moment for me because I was looking at Library of the Printed Web and realizing just sort of what the limits of that project were. And even becoming sort of critical of it in some ways. So I started thinking, I remember I was uh, teaching in Italy with my friend Elisa Giardina Papa. And I was telling her, you know, I want my next project also to somehow be about an archive. But queerness should really be somehow be a part of it. I, I really feel like I'm ready to use that word both for myself personally and my own identity, but how might it be part of my work? And she said, well, why don't you do, I had published five um, printed webs at that point, which were these publications where I was introducing new work from artists who were working um, in that way. She said, why don't you do a sixth issue, printed web number six, but use that as a way to introduce a new project. And I said, oh my goodness, that is, that is just the best idea. I'm going to do that. And we were in Rome together, and I remember thinking, 
I'm just going to start reaching out to people who I want to be in this first issue. And everybody said, yes, I couldn't believe it. So next thing I knew I had this publication I was working on. I hadn't even come back to the U S yet. And this was, it was going to be printed web number six, but I never called it that. I called it queer archive work and I named it after the URL. What I got, I somehow got archive.work as a URL really really cool, cool um, domain name. And then I was able to put queer in front of it. So queer.archive.work was both the website name. And then I just decided to call that the name of the project. So um, Queer Archive Work started as a publishing project. And it, and like you just said, Randy, it came directly out of the printed web, but it had everything to do with print, but nothing to do with the web, with the internet. And I had just gotten a risograph printer and um, used that risograph to produce the entire first issue. Uh, and I think I did an edition of 250 or 300, I forget. And that was that summer of 2018, that was. And then I was at the New York Art Book Fair um, in September with that, with that first issue. Wow. Uh, that so that is really really interesting. And is where in there does your teaching fit in? Because I also see that that is a big part of your practice. Yeah, it really is. Um, teaching, I sort of accidentally like stumbled into teaching. <laughs> um, I never thought that I was going to be a teacher. Now, now um, I kind of can't imagine not teaching. You know, it's become like central to, to everything that I do. So I started, when was it like 2013, 2014, I was kind of filling in for somebody here at RISD. Someone called me up and said, uh, can you come up here and teach a class called relational design? And I said, what is relational design? I said, don't worry, you'll figure it out. Just, I, I had only taught a couple of other classes sort of randomly purchase college at Cornell but I didn't have like a teaching practice. I, I wouldn't call myself an educator at that point. And I said, sure, I'll do it. And I was commuting up from New York, teaching this class, relational design, sort of making it up as I went along. But it was my introduction to Providence, to Rhode Island, to the Rhode Island School of Design, to a whole other kind of way of teaching, a very serious way of thinking about not just how do you teach, but pedagogy. Like, what do you believe in and how do you bring that into a classroom? Um, how do you share that with students? And, you know, I think I stumbled my way through that first, through those first couple of years, but I was, I was instantly hooked. Like I needed to be in a classroom and it, it, it really was about sharing. It just kind of very simply, it was about sharing. It was about giving, giving back. You know, again, sort of going back to the burned out version of me coming out of like 20 years of doing corporate branding work and uh, brand strategy stuff. This was so different. Uh, it just felt like nothing could be more different. And I guess I guess this is just really about like keeping the mix always, always keeping the mix fresh in life for me is just you know, I hate to sort of get grand here and start talking about life, <laughs> ways of ways of living and, and of sort of, um, you know, a, a life's journey. But that that mix of things and constantly challenging myself to do things that I don't know and to learn um, teaching. Teaching was very much that at first. And it still is. You know, now I, I, I got a job at RISD, a full time job. 
um, became a professor there, and now I'm the head of graphic design at RISD. Wow. Is that common for some of the faculty there to not have like a traditional background, <laughs> but to but to entirely reverse engineer it through like uh, maybe you found some silicone as a raw element and sculpted that into a, a MacBook Pro, yeah, and then and then a pirated copy of InDesign or something, and then that's how you started uh, uh, just learning pretty graphic much. design on your own. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Reverse engineering, exactly. Yeah, no, I would say this is not that common. Well, let me take that back. At RISD, everybody's sort of uncommon. You know, there's that's just part of the culture here at RISD, more or less. But still, it is academia, and there are ways of, like, falling into routines and sort of getting stuck or staying, staying for a long time. And it gets hard. It gets really hard to keep that fresh mix going, you know, to constantly be challenging yourself. So I would say that, um, no, that, that is not very common. I mean, I don't have an MFA, you know, I'm kind of outing myself here. Uh, but it's, it's no secret, you know, it's like there, there are certain, um, ways of getting into teaching that are more formulaic. Like you go get your MFA, you get, you know, you start teaching, get a certain amount of experience, et cetera. I started late in life, you know, I was in my forties and had already had this career doing various things as an artist, as a graphic designer, I had a lot to show for it at that point. And I think that became the way I was able to go into a classroom and start sharing. I think if I had tried to do that at, you know, 25 or 30 or even 35, like I would have, that would have been messed up. You know, I, <laughs> I, I can't imagine it. Seriously, I think we are drawn to people. I mean, I think almost part of the purpose of this podcast is to show that some of the best and most interesting people have come at things from all kinds of different directions. Because that's real. I mean, that's real, I think, for most of us. And I think uh, it's a great story. I think it's a great story for students to hear also, but just for people to know. No, oh, it resonates with me entirely because I didn't, I, I'm of the same path. I don't know anything about formally uh, learning about design. And um, mm -hmm. I have to design things. It was out of necessity always. <laughs> and because no one else I knew who I had uh, been in cahoots with knew how to run those programs. So I had to figure mm -hmm. it out as well. Mm -hmm. What was the first thing that made you decide I actually have to make this myself like I have to design this myself <laughs> instead of ask someone else to do it or are you just okay because I'm stubborn and that's why I don't ask other people to do it super interesting that you're asking that because as soon as you ask that question like immediately an image pops into my head of I was going back again to that 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 pivot moment if I can call it that like 2010 2011 I decided at what was I? I was in my early 40s. I was going to be a student with SBA and go on a trip to Italy with two professors, three professors there. And I remember telling everybody, like everybody meaning in New York, professional friends, things like this. Yeah, I'm going on this um, this school trip with SBA. And they're like, oh, you're going to be a teacher. I'm like, no, I'm going as a student. And I went for this two-week trip. And it was like, the, what was it called? Design and typography in Rome and Venice or something like this, uh, taught by Steve Heller and Louise Feely. And I went on this trip and I, I didn't have an artist practice. I didn't have anything. I just sort of showed up and started making these little books in Venice. And I remember getting to this point where I had designed them on the screen 
and I needed to make them and I didn't know how. And I just like, like you just said, Oliver, I just did it. I like found a laser printer. I just started like spitting all these prints out and I scotch taped them together. (laughs) And I made these four super long accordion books that unfolded and like showed, you know, these different stories about Venice and, that was, I'll just, I'll never forget that project. That was, that was like a turning point for me because this was not for a client. It was not even like for school in a traditional sense, like for the grade or anything like that for the teacher. This was really just for me to figure out like, okay, I'm here. I'm a person in a beautiful place seeing things. How do I make something out of that? And I did it. Yeah. That was the start something do, do you find that um say the the the, the classroom has those opportunities for the, the students like you try to create those moments yeah, for them that's exactly it that's that's it is for me teaching is about how do you recreate that moment that i just described again and again and again you know how do you keep that space not just for the students but for me <laughs> you know it's like i'm learning from them hopefully they're learning from each other and Maybe I'm sharing something with them, and but I never think of it in a from a like top down approach. It's not like the professor is like delivering information for the students. It's more like how can I set up the conditions? How can I set up a space for everybody to feel comfortable, as comfortable as I felt in Venice in that moment? You know, and it's not always easy because you know not everybody does, and there are a lot of barriers that people bring into a classroom: cultural barriers, um, personal ones. Uh, expectations, you know, like I got to get a good grade. I got to get a good job. I have to please my parents, all these things. It's really, really hard, especially at RISD, which is known as the best, you know, I'm constantly trying to take, to, to not use those words and to take down, take RISD off of that pedestal and get as real as possible in the classroom and think of it as a moment to unlearn actually. To like unlearn what you think you know about design or about yourself and just let things happen. All that echoes like what Randy and I are trying to do with the art book fair. Of course, we're trying to create those moments for people too. Cause it, I mean, it ties back to when you realized, Hey, this is, this is a, an achievable, uh, you know, moment for me as an artist. Mm-hmm. I can, I can be here next year and present uh, this work. But yeah, I think it, it also, it's, so much of it is like in, in tune with uh, your, your current work, with queer archive work. It's just, mm-hmm. and, and creating a, a, a shared space where other people yeah. can have that. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, creating that shared space and creating the conditions for challenging yourself to unlearn what you think you know. I have to say, though, I have to back up a little bit and say that with all, all of this, these stories that I'm telling about how I got into an art book fair, how I got into RISD, how I got into MoMA library, et cetera, you know, there was a tremendous amount of privilege that went along with all of that. And, you know, I'm saying all these things and laughing about them as though they were easy. And I think in some ways they were because, because there was, there was, um, these were moments that went along with a lot of privilege that I had in my life from running a successful business, from being a, a, a white person who had access to certain networks and certain ways of doing things. Um, all of that is also there as part of the story. And one of the unlearning things that I'm realizing really pretty recently in my teaching, 
uh, you know, I'm talking about unlearning and setting up the conditions in the classroom, is how, how can one bring an awareness to or even acknowledge those privileges as a professor, as a teacher, as somebody who's walking into a classroom with power and authority? Um, how can you bring that in and, and be aware of it and also try to decenter yourself from what's going on in the classroom. That's also a very, very important part to how I approach teaching these days. And I think that's something that is achievable, mostly in a classroom. And it's something that I've had much a much harder time doing elsewhere in life. Mm-hmm. You know, like in trying to be a successful graphic designer, trying to make it from a business perspective in the design world um, is based, there's, there's, there are just so many ways that privilege works and enhances that process and is built into and part of how the design world runs and what's considered successful and in teaching and in, you know, and in teaching as well. But I'm finding that I can experiment with these things in the classroom at queer archive work. I can experiment them with them even more, you know, and that's, that's, what's been great in my current work. I'd love to hear more about that, but I just, I can't resist to say, um, just appreciate your honesty and talking, especially not just about being transparent about your situation, but also really acknowledging some of the paradoxes and some of the mm-hmm. difficulties of it. You know, when um, you know I met you at that first book fair, but by the next time you came, you were giving a lecture. I literally mm-hmm. typed into my phone during your lecture, resist legibility, right? Resist oh, legibility. Right. Yes. Typed it onto like the little reminders in my um mm-hmm. in my phone, <laughs> put it on daily repeat and like looked at it. Like I looked at it like a, every day for a really long time. Wow. Well, I think it was really meaningful. And I think I think also being privileged and educated and coming even into the art world from a position of thinking about communication and thinking about clarity and and identifying even equity and access as a matter of like not speaking jargon language and some of the kind of Mm -hmm. obvious things you think about so resist legibility like that flew in the face of like everything that I actually valued and it was it, mm. that was like such a radical eye opener to me because and I think now I look at your work through that lens and I just think like I mean that's it's it's very radical I mean it really upends a lot of um negative things that we take for granted but it also upends like things that I value pretty highly so I'll, I spend a lot of time thinking about it Thanks, Randy. I mean, that that means the world to me to hear you tell that story about how that phrase struck you and stuck with you. You know, that that it really does, because that idea has stuck with me. And I'm still I'm like wrestling, grappling with it all the time. Resist legibility. That's a that's a phrase I got from Jack Halberstam, um, who is a queer theorist, educator, writer has been really influential on how I approach queerness in, in my work and what legibility means in the design world would it, but is, is, you know, is an interesting challenge or problem to, to, to look at, to think about, to experiment with. But when you start thinking about it in the social world and the political world, what legibility means, what it means to be seen, what it means to be read clearly, what it means what, a, what it means for a body to be seen a particular way or to present a particular way and be seen by the state 
that's where it starts to get really important, actually, like how legibility is. It's, it's not an easy binary. It's not like, can you be read clearly or not clearly? There's, there's so many ways to complicate that and problematize that and should be. Yeah, I like that it was kind of a that uh, that talk publishing as practice as resistance was just like this manifesto mm. of of how to turn your art practice into a weapon against <laughs> these dark structures yeah. that had taken over. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, it really it really hit with me too. It's just like the 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 ideas of just like you're upending all these design principles and kind of illustrating how you could use that as a way to see differently. Yeah, I like I really like the way that you put that all over weaponizing and against dark forces. It's it's true. I mean, it feels like that a lot of the time, but also, you know, there's there's a lot of joy also in queerness in all the people that I'm learning about working with right now in queer archive work. And I can talk more about that. Um, what that's become, because it's it is interesting. I'm realizing that there is so much space for for joy you know, in shared practice. And there's a lot of, there is a lot of work to be done against dark forces. <laughs> uh, it's super important, but how to make space for collective joy through making and through sharing um, has, has become the focus of queer archive work now. So just to sort of like get to that, that publishing, that one publishing project that I mentioned that I printed on the Rizograph machine and took them to the New York Art Book Fair, Boston Art Book Fair, all of that has now turned into a shared studio. Uh, it's it kind of it grew out of my own personal artistic practice, but at some point I realized that this risograph printer that I had was so powerful and was something that should be shared because I was really using it too infrequently. Like I would use it to print something; it would be on for like 24 seven for two weeks. And then it would sit there dormant for like two months. And I thought, how can I invite others into the studio? And that grew into a shared studio space. It grew into an artist residency centered on the risograph printer that grew into restarting the whole project with bench press a year ago here in Providence, uh, in a really large, beautiful space. And now we have like four risograph printers and a big giant incredible screen printing facility and the library and 40 people sharing the studio and that for me is where the joy really is is in that studio and it has nothing to do with me <laughs> and that part is you know it probably seems kind of obvious for anybody listening in right now but for me that is major because after a a, a lifetime, really, a, a whole career, multiple careers of trying to figure out how to, like you said earlier, be the best, be the most successful. All of those metrics that I had drilled into me growing up as the child of a, an immigrant, you know, where it was just work, work, work all the time, accumulate as much as you can, be as protective and as you know well off as you can to secure you know your future. After all of that, um, figuring out now how to undo some of that to distribute your resources, to share, to decenter yourself in space so that others have space to um, do what they need to do. 
Um, that's that's where I am right now with this space and with this project. Um, that's what queer archive work is. I'm still publishing. I'm doing it a little bit less now and doing more to take care of that space and see what it, what what it needs so that it remains viable and can continue. Because having a queer print collective that is a safe space for people to make their work is kind of unusual. You know, there's not not a lot of those. So what's the most surprising thing that's happened with that space? Wow, so much. Um, the most surprising has been, I don't know, anything that I'm thinking about has been that has been surprising has also kind of not been because it's just sort of like happened organically coming out of the, the way we've been working. Well, most surprising, okay, I mentioned Binge Press. That is a collective of eight folks, artists and educators and um, folks, activists who do movement work here in Providence. We got the space together because we didn't think we could get this beautiful space on our own. You know, Queer Cut Work and Bench Press signed the lease together because we were just stronger together. You know, we could, we could pay the rent. <laughs> so that's not surprising. We did that thing because it was efficient and because it seemed like a good idea. The most surprising thing for me is that we immediately started running the whole studio together. Every square inch of that space was all of us just working together to make it one space. And people coming in would be like, oh, well, where's Bench Press and where's Queer Archive Work? I'm like, no, no, this is it's just one studio. Like, there's the library that Queer Archive Work brought in. There's the screen printing equipment that Bench Press brought in. But everybody that's coming in is using all of this stuff and there's no distinction. There doesn't need to be. So we recently decided that we're merging. Wow. <laughs> um, so that is, you know, like kind of it's surprising for us. I don't know if it'll be surprising for anyone else because, you know, who cares really? It, anybody who knows and loves the space has has known us just as us. And it is the space. It's one space. But for us, for the organizers who started this, it's kind of surprising because um, Queer Cup Work is a 501c3. It's a nonprofit. So legally, it's, you know, it's a bank account. It's a certain structure, legal structure. We're tax exempt. All of that's great for applying to grants and um, getting funding, et cetera. Bench Press was an LLC. And we're realizing that we can use a nonprofit as a way to help manage and run the space. And we're going to try to resist becoming, we're going to try to resist nonprofit culture <laughs> as best we can. And, and really try to be as collective to be as cooperative as we can. We're going to try to be a co-op running within a nonprofit. And that's where we are right now. I love it. Well, we have to turn to the question of your wardrobe. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. We have to? I didn't even know that was on the <laughs> is that on the approved question list we sent through his publicist? You know, you run into Paul and he's in a t-shirt and this and that in this setting. But when you run into him on the street, he is the most colorful person that you're gonna see, right? Or is that just my uh just a coincidence? I love your wardrobe. Well, thanks, Randy. I'm glad I have one fan. <laughs> With regards to my to my wardrobe, I um, I don't ever think of myself that way as somebody with any kind of style. But sometimes people tell me that I have some style, and that's it's funny to me. But um, sure, I'll take it. 
I don't, you and Oliver have that in common. I'm very jealous. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> what else can we ask? What else would you like to tell us? Oh, I have a, I have a good question. What, what, what are the... Uh, so... Providence in general just seems to be this in- incredible hotbed of just really out a wide range of projects. Mm. What what do you what, is there anything else that you're that you're seeing in Providence or or in general mm. right now that you, you think is making really great work that people should pay attention to? Yeah, yeah, I think you know you just said it. I mean, Providence right now is just such an awesome place to be for an artist. I mean. <sighs> It's, it's, it's hard and it's a struggle and a challenge for anyone to be an artist anywhere. But I would say that after living so many years in New York City where it's that struggle is like, you know, New York City has a very special grip on that struggle. Things are a little bit easier in Providence, I think. Like to be able to get a, a space and do something and experiment with it, to be able to find a space to, you know, like to DJ, to have, a, have an event, to do a pop-up, to have... Affair. We're we're organizing the the queer and trans zine fest for September fourth. Binge Press and Queer Archive work are putting that together, and that's coming up soon. I mean, the idea of like trying to put something like that together in a place like New York City is so daunting. But here, it's it's happening. It's I I can't call it easy, but I have to say there are some seriously committed and like devoted people here in Providence to movement work to activism to um using art for social good and for for social justice i mean that's such a strong thing here it's if you're looking for it you can find it you know it's it's not it's not hidden it's you know it's accessible it's here so yeah i don't know providence is is pretty great I'm loving it here. Um, it's it's a good place to be to do that to do that kind of work. I think Providence also is so easily associated with really exclusive institutions. You know, people come to this town to go to RISD, to go to Brown, to go to all the other you know amazing schools and universities that are here. That is definitely a way that Providence gets to be known and gets to be used in a way. People, can, it's a transient you know like population that comes in and does what they need to do and. It's that can be exciting and fun to like have this constantly changing community. Um, but the people that I'm talking about that are doing movement work or who are really doing what they can to, to have an, art, an artist's practice, you know, in a city in the U.S. at this particular moment are people who are here. You know, they're they're here. They're part of a local scene. They're embedded in this place and they love this place and you know i'm speaking kind of generally but i guess really i'm talking about myself (laughs) and um the people who are coming into our studio and who need a place to work and so a place like queer archive work where if you want to be a member um you know we have a sliding scale from 40 dollars up to pay a monthly fee to have you know a key to access a studio space 24 7 to do your work and we don't even really care what work you're doing. We just know that, you know, if, if you're coming in and it means something to you, then this space is, is important to you. Um, and that's for you. So anyway, that's a long winded way of saying, yeah, I love problems. <laughs> I think that's amazing. I, th- I would have, uh, I think our, 
our responsibility is to make uh, spaces like that to make uh, mm-hmm. any any type of opportunity for the younger generation because it's the decks so stacked against them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, have you ever been a day trail? It's like a day party yeah. uh, run by Stay Silent Providence. Um, there's a DJ who was actually uh, he sh- he showed at the uh, art book fair as well. Uh, Where's wow. Nasty is his name, and he's like this awesome DJ who plays wow. everywhere in Providence. But he's him and his crew, including shout out to Drew from Bodega. Um, mm-hmm. They, I just feel like they they contribute so many interesting things to the Providence scene. Like they had this free, I forgot the name of it, but it was this ga- this gallery uh, pop up space that anybody could use in a curated manner, uh, just for small projects that were just starting out. And oh, just, and was that need- called? Um, was that uh, trade something? Yeah, I think um, that was. I think that's what it was. In Fox called, Point. Yeah. Yeah. They're doing, there's just always, I just love, I'm always on the lookout for people who are doing things like that, that just creates like this mm. DIY underswell that will just take over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's great. No, I mean, that's, it's an important part of like what Providence is. It's a part of, part of the place, you know? And I think places are interesting. It's like Boston's a place, New York's a place. Uh, you know, like searching and looking for places to live your life and to do your work. Like, how does that even happen? But these things that you're talking about that I'm talking about are, are somehow like a part of this place. And there's, a, there, you know, there's a history of that Fourth Thunder, Dirt Palace going back into the 90s even. There are, um, you know, that generation of people are mostly still here, you know, and they are now, like you like you say, you know, creating spaces or helping to somehow like make younger folks who are trying to do this work um, to make it a little bit easier for them. Yeah. And that's what I'm always trying to get Randy to do with her, her space. Gallery. <laughs> uh, you know, something for Boston, I think we get jealous of that in Providence, Dirt Palace, mm. uh, those guys that like great work. We've had lots of crossover with lots of the Providence uh, energy and stuff like that. Just what you say, it's expensive here. It makes it mm-hmm. really hard to, I'm from Portland, Oregon. That's another space that where art thrives because people can afford space. Uh, it's just incredibly, mm-hmm. it's incredibly challenging. But I agree, Oliver. I don't know if you're just teasing me, but no, that's kind of what we do. That's kind of what you do, though, because you're like the link between like the the grimy dirt palace. You could be the one who links them to. Say, <laughs> They're the not ICA. so grimy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or you're the one who you're the one who with what we do. It's like we get them, you know eyeballs on them from you know all the the big institutions of the city here you know mm-hmm. yeah and we want that crossover yeah well and i do think like we recognize the value if you work with um artists over a long period of time you recognize the value of just a little bit of visibility at that right moment or a little bit of attention mm-hmm. or a little bit of of um uh you know whatever just encouragement at, at that moment when you really have something to offer and there's, you're going to not get a chance for anyone to see it. And I think, mm-hmm. I mean, book fair is great that way because it has so much flexibility and people can come in. There's a lot of points of access. Mm-hmm. And, um, but, um, yeah, maybe the Mills Gallery too. I'm mean, just like trying to give people a good, like, so they don't stumble trying to get onto that next step or something. Yeah. More chances to publish. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. To publish. Um, sure. But, but also just, I want to 
put in a plug for the queer and trans zine fest um, cuties as as we call it that's coming up in September and it's I think I can't we don't know of any other art book fair zine fest anything like that where exhibitors are being paid to um, participate so you know it's not going to be much but we're trying to well we've secured some funding and we're we're trying to make it enough so that everybody um, is able to participate in a way and just make it a little bit easier. Hey, so Paul, two things. One, we got to chat offline because I I really mm-hmm. would like to do more of that in our fair too. And I'm trying to figure out what some yeah. logistics might be. And two, make send me dates and times for your fair. I'll put it in our show notes so we can get the word out about it. But yeah. we, we also are just starting to initiate. We're starting to build funds so that we can uh, allow people to apply to have at least their table fees covered. I think we yeah. have pretty low table fees, like relative to the art book fair world. But we also really value like giving, um, especially uh, people who are just entering the profession, like a chance to mm-hmm. table when that's expensive for them. Yeah, that's why I mentioned it, Randy. Yeah, yeah. definitely. I want to talk because, you know, Boston Art Book Fair is amazing. But I do feel like in the world of like in the art book fair world, it's yeah. both a small and a large world. Yeah. <clears throat> there's a there's a real need to to make it more equitable and to make it more accessible to especially folks who have never tabled before. Um, and they're unsure even like, you know, how to go about it and just making that process easier. So yeah, I would love to talk. Yeah. hundred percent. We're on the same page. I, it, I mean, I had to come to it by doing it, you know, whatever, realizing this has taken a while to like understand more about this, but no. Randy had to fight me. I was like, we need that $60, man. And she was like, no, Oliver, no, you already have seven cars. You already have the house in the Hamptons. You don't need that young kid's $60. I was like, fine, whatever. Oh, I got, it's good to have a a supportive partner (laughs) in all things. (laughs) Anyways. Yeah, you guys are great. Oh no. Well, I applaud you. I want to I'll come down to your fair. I'm making mental note of September 4th and uh Providence is always fun to visit anyway, so that is that's super cool. Yeah, it's going to be at the Steel Yard, um which oh, is outdoors. Nice. So, it's, it's such a great venue for things like that. So. Wow. I remember also visiting there years ago where they did like an outdoor Halloween welding, like incredibly <laughs> wild fire everywhere kind of situation. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if they still do that. All right. That, they, they still do stuff like that. Yeah. Oh my God. Is that a th- that used to happen at Mass Art too? Did you guys ever go to that? They they would have the no. metalwork students. They would book metal bands and then they would bring all these like molten lava pits outside and everyone would get drunk in a courtyard while metal's playing and just fire shooting. You know, it's sanctioned by mass art. I'm not sure. I don't think it's. Wow. Still. I think the last time I heard the last time I went to something like that was like probably 2004. But I was like, this is uh, I felt like I was not even part of America. I was in like some alternate like a uh, secessionist um, free country at that point. Yeah. If only. Jeez. Yeah, that was amazing. If only. Hmm. This is really fun. Well, it's been a super delight to talk to you. Thank you for sharing you. so much about your personal journey and um, all the stuff. Thanks, Randy. Thanks, Oliver. No, it was really, it, thank you. Thanks for the invitation. Thanks for thinking of me and 
bringing me in. This was a real pleasure. Yeah, it was great. We learned a lot, and we're gonna um, we're we're gonna send Randy to come visit the uh, the Zine Fest that you're putting on. Good. <laughs> I'm the you reporter. Can come to If I wasn't in self-imposed exile uh, and quarantine, I would. But I Oliver doesn't leave that egg chair, whatever it is. (laughs) (laughs) Looks comfy. All right, thanks, guys. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.